Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Hello, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And uh, I have somebody else there in the studio, but we're trying to figure out how to get everybody's mic working. We'll be recording this in the studio, but we're trying to get it to go out over the airways. I'm trying to avoid feedback. So (laughs) Anyway, I got... I got back so late and was so tired that I didn't know if I could do the show. It was so hot in here because it's a warm day, you know, global warming and all. <laughs> so climate change, climate change, <laughs> climate change. Yeah, whatever. Uh, it's it's summertime in the desert, so it's hot. So anyway, my son's here, and so I said, "Well, let's go on together, and we'll experiment with doing the show together." And I was noticing he was. Got a book that he was reading. It was uh, Daily... Bernard Daly's Promise. Oh, okay. So, I thought, well, Daly... And actually, I know who the guy is a little bit. He knows more about him than I do. But, uh, the, of course, the Bible talks about a daily ministration, which is the same name, but uh, no relation. And so, I thought, well, we could talk about that. So, anyway, he had an interesting take on the case of uh, Daly, who uh, died in the 1920s, I guess, and left a trust. Mm-hmm. And uh, why don't you just tell them a little bit about the trust, and I'll see if I get all the other buttons pushed I'm supposed to be pushing. No, I think, I think we may be on live. I think it's working out just fine. Yeah. So Mr. Daly, uh, he was an Irish family immigrant back in the 1800s. Uh, to America. He came into the country most likely through, uh, what was it? Uh, I think it was uh, Mobile, Alabama, because at that time a lot of the ports were closed off to Irish immigrants coming into New York. I don't know how much you, you're, you, you remember some of that history as far as, you know, in history class growing up. Um, are you, is it working? Yeah, I think so. I was just uh, put myself on mute while I was checking the sound levels. But, uh, yeah, the uh, there are a lot of Irish immigrants that came over here. Uh, our own grandparents, great-grandparents came over here from Ireland. They worked in quarries in Ireland after the potato famine and the g- general dearth in uh, mm-hmm. Ireland. Uh, economics were thousands, millions of people were eventually displaced. Some starved to death. There's all kinds of stories of people, uh, you know, starving and, and dying along the side of the road because the mechanization of farming pushed a lot of people off of the land because they were only tenant farmers. They didn't own the land. And, of course, hundreds of years before, many Americans had left that tenant farming idea in England and Holland and lots of other places. Right. To actually own land in America and become what you call landed Americans. That would be Americans who actually had a lawful title to land. They weren't just tenants on the land paying rent. So anyway, he came over. I don't know much about his history. I know our... He was a little boy when he came over. Uh, it was around 1860, 1870 or so when they arrived here. And at that time, actually, I think it was New York and Boston had instituted some of the first immigration laws in the country. Even though they weren't countries of themselves, they weren't cities, uh, weren't states or... Uh, any, any real authority over immigration, but what they did was they imposed a bond, uh, law, a local ordinance of type to where if you came into this country as, specifically if you were a poor Irish family, um, the captain of the boat would have to put up a bond if you looked at all like you might not be able to, um, sustain yourself and take care of yourself. And they were trying to limit the amount of people coming in and, and a lot of these poor Irish families that were looking to stake a claim and start a life here. And so, uh, it was, it was difficult to get in through those, the two real main ports that were bringing in ships from Ireland at that time. Um, 
so they would either I can't remember what the name of the, these boats they called. Basically, it was like uh, you'd have to pay a little extra money and try and scoot around some of the ports and try and land elsewhere. And it was a little bit like a coyote or something to get across the border. Um, or you went into a southern port and to one of the southern states. And, and of course, at this point in time, there was a civil war going on, and Mobile, Alabama was one of the few places that actually still had an open port. And he, of course, his family settled in Selma, Alabama, which was only about 40 miles away from Mobile. So that's where most people figure his family came in at. And he was a young kid, I think as a teenager, he worked his way up to New York, and with his brother, and they got into contracting, and somewhere along the line, when he was at a younger age, he made his way all the way across the states to Lake County, Oregon, and he settled here. He loved it here, and he wanted to stay. Um, he never married, never had children, um, but he was extremely successful in everything he did. Uh, he wanted to bring in a railroad. He was very successful in bringing in the first railroad to the area. He was one of the first doctors. In fact, not only was he a county judge, he was a representative, a state representative at the time and everything, and he just had this long history of doing all these different things, and he was a doctor more than anything. And there was years ago, there was a fire in Silver Lake, actually, not too very far from us. And uh, it was during Christmas, and a local church had a big Christmas tree, and they had candles on it. And there were candles in the chandelier, and somewhere along the line, a candle fell down, started a fire, and a bunch of people got trapped inside the building because the doors opened inward, or inward. And so people couldn't get out, and there's severe um, scars and everything else. Someone got onto a horse, though. Without a doctor in town, they rode a horse all the way to Lakeview, and that's over 100 miles from Silver Lake. Uh, during the winter, at Christmas time, got Dr. Daly, and he got onto his horse-drawn buggy, and he raced through the winter in the dead of night, Christmas Day, to get all the way up to Silver Lake. hundred miles. I mean, it was a trek. It wasn't. It didn't just happen in one night. It was a couple on, days. It wasn't on blacktop. No. <laughs> no. It was old dirt roads and everything else. Um, yeah, I, a, horse, a horse can pull a buggy maybe 20 miles in a day, maybe 30 if it's right. a really tough horse, but... You need to change horses. He switched horses away. several times, yeah. and he but he kept going, and he got to Silver Lake where he administered care to, um, I think there was like 30 burn victims still living, um, and uh, he saved a bunch of people's lives, really. So he was kind of a monumental figure up here. He was, he was very committed to you know his practice as a doctor. In those days, of course, you didn't have to have a license to practice as a doctor, although he was one of the first, in fact, I believe he was the first doctor in the state of Oregon to have a license. Um, there was a very controversial point in time uh, back in the early 1900s, uh, turn of the century, um, when this, the, the federal government suddenly decided, oh, we're going to institute a... Uh, um, we're going to require doctors or medical professionals, is what they were called back then, to acquire a license in order to practice medicine and administer care. Um, and, of course, the majority of Americans at the time were like, this is crazy. How dare you try and tell me that my doctor has to go get a license in order to administer care to me? He's been administering care to my family forever. And so it's just very, you can see, it's interesting reading the book because you can see the change in American culture where, you know, we went from the majority of Americans not even liking the idea of a licensure to be a doctor to where we are now where the majority of Americans think you need to have a license to do anything. You need to be vaccinated to do anything. You need to do this to do anything. And uh, it's complete runaway of governmental authority. And it's just an interesting little window into the past, about 100 years or so. Dark yeah, if you, if you look at things like people talk about the United States or America being a government of the people, for the people, and by the people, 
when you hired a doctor, when you agreed to go to a doctor, when you asked a doctor, can you help me? You licensed him. Yeah, you did. That's because license is permission to do that which you are right. otherwise not permitted to do by law. So he can't even medically treat you till you give him permission. Consent. Now, the government gives him permission and you can't stop him. Because the government has permitted him to work on your body. It right. ain't your body, evidently, unless you want to abort your baby. <laughs> but, well, not anymore. Roe versus Wade got overturned the other day. Did yeah, you hear? Well, yeah. Now right. it's just going to go back to the states. Well, it'll just go back to the states, which is the reality. And a lot of people don't really understand what just happened. A lot of people are freaking out. Here in the state of Oregon, we actually have worse laws, in my opinion. I think our laws are worse than they are in California when it comes to abortion. Because you can't abort a child in the state of California if the fetus is viable. But in the state of Oregon, you can abort a baby throughout the pregnancy term. Yeah, see, people ask me, don't you want it to be illegal to, uh, uh, you know, against the law to abort a baby? I said it already is against the law to abort a baby. It's just that everybody's breaking the law. They're using the legal system to make an excuse for breaking the law. And and uh, that's that's just a major, you know, it's a... There's been a changing of the mind over the last hundred years where we don't think like Americans used to think. We think differently. And so the, the, the topic of Daly and his life is, is kind of an interesting thing to look at. That's what we're always doing here at Keys of the Kingdom is to look at, look at how we think because repentance is changing the way you think to think the way you should have been thinking and you were thinking maybe 50 or 100 or maybe 150 years ago. But we don't realize how much our thinking has been changed by the circumstances. So, anyway, Daly is a good example of that. I didn't realize that uh, my son was evidently just reading the book. Is that something you picked up this week? Or? Yeah, actually, I, I picked it up from the guy who wrote it. He was traveling in Lakeview and I managed to get an autographed copy of the book, and uh, he spent, I think he interviewed over a 100 um, Lake County residents um, in order to um, gather information, letters, and documents on Dr. Daly's life. And so I just, I really found it fascinating just as a glimpse into history of um what his goals were and what he was trying to do. Obviously, he led a, an interesting life and an interesting point in time. He, I didn't agree with everything that he he's done. You know, especially once he got into politics, he was a uh, obviously a good doctor. Um, he really cared about people. He didn't want. He didn't like the licensure aspect of medicine. And in practicing medicine and care, uh, which is actually really what he focused on was the care, uh, not so much medicine in terms of what we think of today as in terms of drug administration. But uh, I, he wanted to administer care to those in California because Lakeview is right on the California border. So he actually went down to California and got his license to practice there. And he was the first doctor in Oregon to have a license because... He wanted to administer care beyond just the borders of Oregon. And um, Oregon at that time still couldn't figure out how to do licensures. And they weren't sure they wanted to because at that point, Oregon was about 80% Republican. And they and that part and whatever the Republican Party was at that time didn't think that licensures should be something necessary in order to be a medical professional and be a good doctor. Um, if you were a bad doctor, people just didn't hire you, and that was the concept. The yeah, one of the things about that idea again is that in order to hire a doctor, you're licensing him to practice medicine on you. When you turn to the job of licensing a doctor to the state, now the state says that he is a good doctor, but you know and I know that every doctor the state says is a good doctor is not necessarily a good doctor. That's why. The, they're always talking about second opinions now because they, 
they you can be a licensed doctor and be an absolute idiot when it comes to good health and uh, and we we've starting to see examples of that where there are this broad spectrum of viewpoints in medicine as to what is actually good for you what is healthy for you we even talked about it a little bit this morning on the show how uh, a great many of the practices of modern medicine can actually be more detrimental to your health than uh, going to a unlicensed doctor it just depends i mean it's it's a broad range but this idea of turning the responsibility over to the state to decide who is capable or qualified or uh, smart enough to work on you as a human being or, or treat you. And now treatment, like he says, treatment for Dr. Daly was mostly care. Today, treatment is involving pharmaceuticals, which are extremely powerful and can often, and we've heard all the the messages on the TV when they're advertising something where they have somebody talking a mile a minute telling you all the things that this medicine can do, this pharmaceutical medicine can do that can kill you, cripple you, cause blindness, uh, hemorrhaging, uh, infertility. You know, they just list these things off at a mile a minute because they're not just dealing with care. They're dealing with uh, powerful, often extremely powerful drugs that may have, may do far more harm than good. But uh, Daly did something. I don't know if you have a few things before we get into what Daly did uh, in the state of Oregon uh, or in Lake County, I guess. I don't know. He started a trust. So that was that was the big thing that he's known for. Of course, was the beginning of this trust. Um, he create. It was at, he's best known for what he did after his death um, in 1920. And the trust went into effect in 1922 uh, because there was a massive lawsuit that went on for several years uh, over the creation of the trust. And it had to go to federal court and everything else. It was tried in Portland before a judge. And they were trying to evaluate whether or not it was legal what he did. And, of course, Lake County residents are very happy about this even to this day. Because what it was, was it was like an evergreen fund. It was one of the first, I'm actually pulling up some information on this right now, but what he wanted to enable was children of any, no matter what their status was in the world, no matter what um, their financial situation was, he wanted to enable them to go on to higher education. And back in those days, you know, that was a major ordeal. And... Uh, to, to further their education and be able to have access to those things was was huge, especially if you grew up in a place like Lake County, you know. Which you know, I mean, for us, even when we moved here back in the '70s, the mail truck was still called a stagecoach. So it uh, it's just it was an interesting world. But the um, since 1920, since the creation of this trust. The fund itself has enabled uh, 1,991 Lake County students to be selectees, and it's enabled them to go on to higher education and achieve and acquire very good scholarships. And uh, of course, the nature of colleges and everything have changed today. So one might even argue that whether or not that was a benefit. I personally think, you know, it, it is what you make it. It could be a benefit. Um, if you know what you want to do and you're certain on it, if you're not just going to school to get a liberal arts degree, um, maybe it could benefit you greatly. Uh, the fund was about, he left, a, his estate was about a million dollars, which in those days is about would be about $14 million today. His family, even back in Ireland and Scotland and other places, they sued the estate because they didn't get anything and they thought this was outrageous. And at those days, the scholarship funds were kind of a novelty. It wasn't really something anyone was doing much with. But their argument was, how can you leave an estate when to someone or to a beneficiary that is unknown? 
And of course, you know, they all wanted the money on the estate. They didn't like this idea of this evergreen fund that was going to sit there forever and continue to, um, to help Lake County residents. None of them even lived in Lake County. He didn't have children. He had a brother and some cousins and other family who he'd never even met. But it was interesting because the judge's final ruling was <laughs> more of a philosophical one. And he ruled that true charity ultimately could only begin or be found when the beneficiary was unknown. And which I actually have in a piece from the book here where he says a public charity, a true public charity begins only when uncertainty in the recipient begins. And while in a private trust, the gift will fail and revert to the donor or his heirs. When the beneficiaries are so uncertain or so incapable of taking that they cannot be identified or cannot legally claim its benefits. Yet in the the case of a charitable gift, it is immaterial that the beneficiaries are indefinite. Because it was this idea that it would go on and on and on. The charity would continue to give and these students and their success would be able to give back and put back into the fund over time it wasn't a demand it was dependent on charity and over the years many other people aside from dr daly in have left their estates and donated generously to keep the fund going but it was entirely based around charity it wasn't a demand it was in the hopes that it would bring success to the lives of the people of his community. And through that success and the charitable hearts of those people, that they would give back to keeping the fund going for future generations. And it has been, as of this year, it has been a 100 years in operation. And in a county with only 8,000 people, to send several thousand children on to higher education, that's pretty monumental. And so that was one of the big things that he's known for here in this community in terms of his charity and what he was trying to accomplish with it. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it was an interesting glimpse into that period of time in the 20s when, uh, it, like, for instance, some of the first recipients of the fund from 1922 to 1945, the majority of all, and I mean the vast majority, like 90% of the recipients, were young women, young girls, graduating high school, finishing high school. Um, they would acquire these scholarships and go on to higher education. And, it, and through the reading of the book, the writer, who actually was the dean of education at the University of Education, he was, at the, he was the dean, I believe, at the U of O, can't remember where else, he was in a, several different colleges. Anyway, before I get, get something wrong, um, he uh, he believed that at that point in time, from the 1920s to 1945, the most educated people per capita in the entirety of the Northwest were from Lake County, as far as young women. The most, the highest educated young women in the entirety of the Northwest, per capita, were from Lake County. And the reason for that was they had this fund. They had to give out to a certain amount of recipients every year. And they were looking for the people with most promise and the most ability to go on. They ended up getting a lot of the young men. They had to stay back and take care of the ranch. They had to stay and take care of the farm. So that was a... It, it was a big part of that history where uh, you know, it's the, the young women suddenly decided to take advantage of this, and they the community decided, no, we're gonna we're gonna send our young ladies off and make sure that they get the education they need, which is interesting. You know, you might even say that uh, it was really good for the community because all the men actually had to be at the top of their game because the women were the most educated people in the county at the time, and so. And and I think that paid in 
many ways in terms of providing opportunity to people. You know, if the husband got sick or something happened to the husband, the, the, the wives had options. Um, whether they were taking care of the children or not, there were options available to them. And it created, I, I believe, a sense of community that's, that really wasn't replicating itself in other places at that time. And if see if you magnify what he tried to do as an individual who happened to be fairly prosperous. I mean, we are we had our own grandfather who came from Ireland, mm-hmm. and uh, he went out to South Dakota and was farming in South Dakota. Like I I told the story just a few shows ago, where he was walking behind a team of mules, or actually first oxes, and then eventually you get a horde of mules. Uh, plowing the prairies and growing wheat, and he made enough money growing wheat uh, in such a primitive manner that he was able to retire at 45 with enough money to put numerous young people in the community to college. He would just he would decide who he thought was Worthy. going to yeah make the effort to become whatever it was. And, of course, colleges, I think, were of a different caliber in those days, too. I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that destroyed colleges in the last few decades is uh, government funding of scholarships. Uh, This is private funding we're talking about because there is is a two-way street. Not only uh, is the individual who's putting up, you know, as alma mater or, or whatever it is, he wants to make sure that those students who receives the benefit of his philanthropy, use it wisely. And by the same token, you know the people that are providing you uh, with these funds, and so therefore you want to be worthy of them. And so this natural governing agency of charity, not, you know, student loans, which are just creating burdens on the kids and a windfall for the universities because they get, they receive money up front, millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars in grants to give out these scholarships, but nobody's earned it. And they're able to do that a lot of times because they're taking money in tax dollars by force from other people, which is not charity, but legal charity. Right. Uh, I just also point out, uh, for those who want to look up, we have a page, Guidelines of His Church, because the church is supposed to be a charitable institution. And so if you go to preparingyou.com, or you could actually probably find it at hisholychurch.org, uh, and look up Guidelines of His Church, we talk about a charity. And an unknown beneficiary, and a representative beneficiary. And that is the nature of the trust, uh, that you have to... And this, of course, was the daily ministration of Christ. If you go back even to the Old Testament, you cast your bread upon the waters. That is how charity should work, is that you don't just give to those you love. Christ says this. But you give to those you may not even know, and you have to have a means by which to do that. And, of course, that's what the church was. It was a charitable institution designed to rightly divide the bread, uh, the funds, the, the resources of society from house to house. And you licensed your minister to make those choices. You gave to the minister of your choice not to build buildings not to put in big screen TVs, but to provide all the social welfare for your community. And by doing so, you create these social bonds that connect you with another. Now, the, some of the problems with Daily Fund, like you said, he started it, but it needed a lot of other people to contribute to the existing charity. Right. And that's what churches But it was dependent be. on the charity of the future generations that were beneficiaries of it. Yeah. And like, they're going to be successful with their life. That's the idea. They're going to further their education, become doctors in their own right, become scholars, whatever it might be. And are they going to give back? And And you don't know. There's no guarantee. Could we create a system where it's set up, where it forces you? 
puts you into debt where you have to pay this back. Yeah, now you're talking Nimrod. Now you're talking debt. <laughs> now, you, now you're talking a forced contribution. You're going to, but he was dependent entirely on charity. He says, I, I'm, I'm taking this. I don't know who the recipients will be. It won't be my decision. It will be someone else's decision to, to decide who these future generations and these future recipients will be, who the beneficiaries will be. And I hope, it is my greatest earnest, I think what was his last, one of his words in his will actually said, it is my earnest desire to help, aid, and assist worthy and ambitious young men and women to, of my beloved county of Lake to acquire a good education so that they may be the better fitted and qualified to appreciate and help to preserve the laws and constitution of this free country. And he wanted, that was what he believed, is this is someone who came from Ireland, I mean, he was born in 1858. And, I mean, from what he was seeing in Ireland at that time and what he was able to achieve here, he was seeing tremendous freedom and prosperity compared to what he had to live through. And he wanted to ensure that there was someone able to preserve that. And I don't think it was successful necessarily entirely, obviously, living in the world that we're living in today. But like you say, if you were to maximize that, if you were to multiply that in an entire society, the concept that this is our responsibility to preserve these these concepts, these principles of, of freedom, liberty, and, I mean, then the results are endless. You know, the, the positive effects, the ripple effects through your society are endless. But I, I, I find it a fascinating read simply because of the historical aspects of it. But, you know, going over to what you're talking about in terms of, you know, what the church should be doing, I think it's a valid argument that, you know, many of these, the church really should be spending more of its time on doing the job it was intended to and taking care of the widows and orphans of society in terms of being the social welfare of society. But we, we abandoned that long ago and it's, now it's the government's job. And so here we are. Yeah, the uh, the idea of of, of charity and, and what uh, Alexis Tocqueville calls legal charity, uh, which is forced charity, which is not charity at all. It's kind of an oxymoron in terms, because if you're forcing people to contribute to other people, then it's not charity. It's certainly not love. Uh, and if you're desiring to apply for benefits that were provided by men who exercise authority one over the other, you're actually opposing the gospel of Christ, who said that you've seen the governments of the Gentiles who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. It is not to be that way with you. Yet today... And all of American's religions and churches and the churches and religions around the world, most of them readily accept the idea of the government forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. You actually even call these benefits entitlements, as if you're entitled to take a bite out of your neighbor to provide these. So, what... The opportunity of looking at Daly and his fund and, and his adventure in America and the day when it was free, when, when you licensed your doctor to practice medicine on you because it was your body. That may not be the case anymore. You licensed your minister to be your minister. And hopefully you, as the government of the people, for the people and by the people, were exercising the guidance of the Holy Spirit in making those choices. Unfortunately, people haven't been listening to the Holy Spirit, though they think they have. But in reality, they have been coveting their neighbor's goods and have gone to men like Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Lyndon Baines Johnson and Barack mm -hmm. Obama and saying, 
Will you take more stuff away from my neighbors so that I can have more stuff for free? <laughs> and you think you're a Christian? No. You know what will happen if you do that? You will be aborting your children by the millions. You will be, uh, your, your marriages will fail. 70% of your children will be raised in single parent families. That's what will happen, except for the fact that is already that has happened. And you will follow the ways of Rome with runaway inflation and forced price controls and, uh, dearth that spread across the land. And of course, the remedy for Christians was to go back to a daily ministration of charity and a network based on that charity rooted in moral behavior, not covetous behavior, but moral behavior, not desiring benefits at the expense of others, but desiring to be a benefit to others, to lay down your life for your fellow man. So, Anyway, I thought it would be an interesting, you know, we were actually just moments before the show began, and I saw this book, and I picked it up, and and James started telling me about it, and I was thinking about literally not doing the program. <laughs> he said, well, let's do it together, and fortunately, uh, I didn't fall asleep during the show, so uh, I hope you didn't Not yet, asleep. there's still 15 minutes. <laughs> still 15 minutes. Uh, I got a... There's a quote, America is great because she is good. If America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. And that, that's been quoted by a lot of people and attributed to Alexis Tocqueville. Uh, he actually never ever said that, but there has, everybody from Ronald Reagan to Bill Clinton has quoted Alexis Tocqueville as having said it. So it's, it continues to be attributed to him. I have a whole history, if you go to our Alexis Tocqueville page, that tells you the history of the quote, so that you can find out why did all these people keep saying Alexis said that, and where did it come from originally. So anyway, but I won't go into that now. But if pure religion is that charitable institution that takes care of the needy of society with fervent charity, legal charity by the state is the table that David said is, you know, the table that should have been for your welfare, but is a snare and a trap. And Paul quotes David and tells us the same thing. Yet modern Christians think, no, it's okay to eat at the table of government. But if we would actually come together, we would not only have the means by which to take care of one another in a way that would strengthen the poor. See, that's what's happened is it isn't these... These philanthropic uh, institutions of charity so that people can go to college, that is not a good deal today. It is the colleges have been ruined by legal charity, right? which is not even charity. It's, it, not only is it not charity, but it's student loans. It's actually cursing the student with debt. And then now they think, oh, we will relieve that debt. By cursing everybody else with that debt, with more debt, the college. right? <laughs> so because you got to remember, there's an administrative fee, yeah, for doing this. You know, you got to have that 14 percent or whatever, you know, right off the top. So you know, I mean, you're actually creating more debt because you're running these things through these social welfare programs or these governmental entities that are not based in charity. They're based on. They're not. They're not pulling money out of their pocket. Government has nothing that they haven't first taken from someone else. Even the money they print. What do you think the surety for that debt is when they create money? Well, it's everybody's got a number. Everybody who's been numbered has surety for debt. Even those who haven't been numbered. It's the unborn. Yeah, yeah. And, And so... I mean, this, this idea, but you, there's so many examples of this in our society for, sorry, do I have to hold the phone up? I, I don't know. Okay. I can't tell if they can hear you or not. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I'll hold the phone up. I apologize. So, um, I mean, for instance, just, just this last week, there was an incident, uh, and a couple weeks ago, actually, was when it started, um, the town of Lakeview, um, sent a letter, 
to the county commissioners and the offices to ask if we would lower or reduce or um, give a a reduction in the cost to dump garbage for the town because they, in their charitable hearts, the town of Lakeview had decided to put out a gigantic dumpster for everyone in town to get rid of their garbage. It was part of, I think it was kind of one of these beautify, you know, our town projects. So they wanted everyone to come and dump, and you can do it free. Free, I love that word, right? Free. So people are going to come by and dump their garbage. However, there were rules, like you couldn't dump tires, you couldn't dump appliances, you couldn't dump uh, toilets and different things like that. Well, they dumped it all. People were coming by and dumping anything and everything they wanted. They were abusing it. And now the town of Lakeview was like, whoa, whoa, this is going to be really costly because we have to sort through this or we're going to have to make the county sort through this and there's going to be a cost to all this and we have to pay the county when we dispose of this giant dumpster along with all this other stuff that are additional on top of it because tires are really hard for us to get rid of. We, got, we don't get to just put those in our landfill along with appliances and <laughs> so forth. So, and we were like, Wait, well, we're not going to lower our rates. And, of course, now they think we're the bad guy. But, uh, but, but are we? So they took this dumpster away. This is the rest of the story. They took the dumpster away saying, you know, you guys have ruined it for everyone else. They actually scolded their community. And they said, you guys have ruined it for everyone else. We have to take this away because the county won't give us fees, uh, give us a break on our fees, basically, kind of thing. It was, wasn't really spelled out that way, but it came across. And then people went up the, the canyon and they just dumped their stuff. Took, backed up to the side of a river or a stream and, and just threw everything out of the pickup and took off. And I thought to myself, and actually the mayor actually came up and showed me a picture of it, and I didn't know exactly why he was showing it to me, whether or not he wanted to to try and put some pressure on me to say, hey, this is what happens when we don't, you know, pay, you know, when you guys don't help us get rid of the garbage. And I'm thinking, those are the people you're trying to help. You understand that. The people that think it's okay to go up to a stream and just throw their garbage out, you want me to help them. You want me to subsidize your charity. Your sloth. That's it, because it's not it's not charity. And you want me to take other tax dollars and subsidize this, what you are considering to be a charitable act. What is, but it's not. You're subsidizing exactly what you just said. They're sloth. So what are we doing are we rewarding the wicked, or are we really making anything better? What's what's our goal, and what are we actually accomplishing? And, and there's so many instances like this. I have another instance on, on county roads here in Lake County where we have to go and, and put millions of dollars into building these roads, millions of dollars. And, and these aren't property taxes because in the state of Oregon, it's illegal to use property taxes for roads. You use registration tax, and you use... Um, uh, what they call PILT. It's a payment in lieu of tax from timber receipts, basically, from the Forest Service if they, if the environmentalists don't appeal every timber sale that we do. So at the end of the year, we're paid pennies on the dollar per acre, um, and it comes out pretty significant because of our size, and we take some of those dollars, put it back in the roads. We have, we have uh, you know, the fuel and registration tax and so forth, so we put them into our roads, and everyone seems to license think... License taxes. Yes, yeah, license, yeah, right, license taxes. So um, it's just that it's fascinating when you go back and you see what John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were dealing with, and then you see Samuel Adams, who was just a few years later, tell, talking to his father, being like, hey, Dad... Uh, the world's running really fast here, and it's changing. We need to we need to institute taxes. And his dad was like, you know what? I'm going to let you sink or swim. I'm out. You know, I fought a world, <laughs> fought a war on this, and you're going to have to make your own choices. But here we are again, and, you, and we see elements of like Davy Crockett, where people told Davy Crockett, you know, I'm not going to have anything to do with you because you, you're forcing a contribution of the people. You use and tax dollars to help the poor, and that is absolutely. And he said immoral. that wasn't what you, we wanted you to do. That was immoral. That see, was that was wrong. And people see the shift that takes place in the psyche of the people. This is why these people are driving up the canyon just throwing garbage out because 
that's the kind of government of the people, for the people, and by the people you get when you waive your responsibility to govern yourself. Right. And and we've known this for over 2,000 years when Polybius said the masses continue with an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by the way of the rule of force and violence, which is what taxation is. The people, having grown accustomed to feeding at the expense of others and to depend for their livelihood on the property of others. Right. You know, why aren't you paying for our dumpster? Uh, institute the rule of violence. And now, uniting their forces, massacre, banish, and plunder until they degenerate. The people degenerate again mm -hmm. into perfect savages and finding once more a master and a monarch. Right. The, what we're seeing, the loss of freedom in America, is because we've been taking the freedom away from our fellow Americans. And giving it up. I mean, I, I mean, from even, even willingly. I had an argument with someone not too very long ago when I was, I was walking out of a restaurant and, and he came up to me and this, this one gentleman, he, he was so livid and, and frustrated with what was going on, but he really liked me and he thought, oh James, you're gonna do great. And, and I, we need guys like you because I can't, I can't do it. I can't deal with it. I'm not smart enough. I don't want to deal with it. I can't, I don't want the responsibility. I, we need guys like you. And I thought, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, here's a guy who's, Technically, by definition, one of my supporters, and I'm gonna, and I'm literally about to pick a big old fight with this guy, and I did, and and we sat outside that restaurant for a while, and I scolded him, and he came, he went back in the restaurant, and then I argued with his wife, and then he came back outside, argued with me some more, and I just told him, this is your fault. You're mad about what's going on in the world. You're mad about what you see in society. It's your fault, because. You don't want the responsibility. There's your problem. You're not willing to accept responsibility for your actions. And, and for all the different things in this world, you, you won't participate. You want me to do it. And if that's the case, I don't want you voting for me. I don't want you, I don't want to be associated with you. In fact, I'm thinking about hanging in this whole thing up. I think it was just a season for me anyway. You know, I was really frustrated with this guy because I just saw I'm I'm enabling them, and I and I don't want to. And most people, and I still maintain this, are perfectly fine with a dictator as long as it's their dictator. And they will not come together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They will not sit down voluntarily. It's a cultural issue. It's a societal issue. I see it in you know, like I was saying with the roads. Uh, I've got guys out there, a whole crew of fifteen guys working on this road. Millions of dollars going into it. People who are going to benefit from it, driving by, treating my guys like they're an inconvenience, flipping them off. One, on one occasion, they threw dog crap at my road crew. Dog crap. Poo. We'll just say poo. How about that? Probably a better word. <laughs> and, and one of them... One, I don't know if he's a flagger or what. He had to leap out of the way because the guy was has. Oh, there was another guy that tried to run him over. Yeah, and 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 it happened again like the very next day. Yeah, and it's just just terrible behavior. And you're thinking, why are you guys doing this? And they come up to me and they ask questions like, "Well, how long are these guys going to be up here?" And I said, "You guys have been complaining about roads for since I got here. We're here now, and you want to know how long we're going to be here? Let me ask you this." How long do you want us here? Because every day we're here, we're working on your roads, making your roads better. We're going to be here till September. How about that? Get used to us. <laughs> if you don't want us here, however, we can go somewhere else. 750 miles of road in this county. I don't have to be in that community. I can go somewhere else. But it's a cultural thing where it's everyone's an inconvenience. I can't wait five more minutes for my cup of coffee. You see, this is this I'm gonna run someone over a nation of social welfare. We're it's degenerating. Uh, that's what I'm saying. That yeah. We are degenerating. That's my or point. Have already. Have already. <laughs> what kind of a person bags up dog poo into a bag, puts it in their truck, 
and drives around with it in their truck, <laughs> waiting for to, for the opportunity to throw it at, ro- to road throw road it at road, road workers <laughs> who are working on their roads. <laughs> so, anyway, Alexis says one more thing. I think we're going to get cut off here. Oh, that's minute. perfectly fine. Uh, but uh, uh, I'm done venting for the day. I'm good. <laughs> Well, nobody's falling asleep. But, not going to uh, reward any more slothful. Yeah, we've only got a couple more minutes, but I, I did want to read this one other quote of Alexis Tocqueville, which was written about the time. This is actually a quote from him, written about the time, or just certainly before Daly got here to America. But it gives you an idea of what kind of thinking was going on in the world because of what was going on in America. Not going on in America anymore. Everybody's out there demanding their rights and demanding their entitlements. But he said, but I am deeply convinced that any administrative system whose aim will be provided for the needs of the poor will breed more miseries than it can cure, will deprave the population that is wants to help. It says deprave the population that it wants to help and comfort uh, will in time reduce the rich to being no more than the tenant farmers of the poor, will dry up the sources of savings, will stop the accumulation of capital, will retard and develop uh, the development of trade, will benumb human industry and activity. You can't even get people to work for you anymore. I heard that complaint several times a day. And will culminate by bringing about violent revolution in the state when the number of those who receive alms will have become as large as those who give it. This is legal charity. He's talking about this legal charity. And they plunder each other. You get people who don't care about each other as much as they care about themselves. So, yeah, we need to have a daily administration. We've told you how to do it. So, join us on the network. And until then, peace on your house. And may God be with you. Uh, God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.